Okay. Well, good morning again to you. <clears throat> good morning to those of you in Wilmington. It's good to have you with us as well. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's where we'll be this morning. 1 Corinthians 5. And we have been in a series for some time now, so uh, actually this, this Sunday and next Sunday is all that we have remaining, so we'll do a little bit of the sixth chapter next Sunday. Let me start by sharing a little bit um, <clears throat> sorry, about my own personal development in life. When I was a child, I hated vegetables. Anything that was green was detestable to me. Except for Jello, I would eat green Jello. But green beans, detestable. Broccoli, detestable. Brussels sprouts, the worst. I still don't understand Brussels sprouts. But lettuce was useful only to transport croutons. That's the only thing lettuce was good for. And as a child, I ate in order to get to dessert. What do I need, what do I need to satisfy today to get that? Just, that was sort of how I operated. And so there was always something on my plate that was out of place. I mean, there was something green on my plate <clears throat> which ruined my meal. Well, I got older slowly, and, and I went from a place of hating vegetables to sort of begrudgingly accept that they were the negative, offsetting reality to my dessert. A child can't be all that happy, so you needed to offset it with some amount of vegetables. And then I matured beyond that to a place where I saw everybody my age was eating vegetables but me. So I began to court them on my plate and eat just enough of them so that I might appear normal among my peers. And then something amazing happened. They started to taste good. And they're healthy. Did you know that? They're healthy. And... <clears throat> Like, there I am, you know, 30 years old, enjoying green beans. And, and asparagus is really good. A good asparagus tip is delicious. There's, there's a, there was a time where things were changing, and I was beginning to realize there's no conspiracy. People aren't putting this on my plate to make me sad. This is not just like a ritual of life. These things are legitimately part of the meal and they're contributing to the overall quality of the meal. They occupy half the plate because they're half the meal. I saw them for what they were. Well, in our scripture today, we're gonna be examining a church that seems to be happy with Jesus, but they are al allowing enough of a, 
lifestyles to be lived out in the church that makes one wonder, do they have any concern for holiness whatsoever? They'll take Jesus, just hold the holiness. You might even think of it as um, uh, the sort of gospel message that a person has received where they like Jesus because they get to heaven. But holiness is sort of like the green stuff on the plate. How little, how little of it can I have and still get dessert, still get to heaven? That's sort of a, a situation that is uh, here with us this morning. The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians sort of lay groundwork for some of the root issues going on in that church. So if you haven't been around, I'll just I'll sort of give them to you as pretty plain Corinthian church is proud of itself. It thinks it has arrived. It sees things like the power of the Spirit alive in the church and assumes that because of that, because there is evidence of the Spirit's power, they, they are who they're supposed to be. And Paul is warning them and calling them back to the first things of the faith. Like, we don't ever mature past Jesus. We don't need to build a more complicated message as we grow more mature. That maturity in Christ does not become bored with Christ. And we should not be proud of the things God has given us, but rather we should be humble in the Lord. And he's been pointing at their pride several times now, and the fifth chapter starts a series of examples in the church of, you, you're so proud, but what about that? So this is sort of how the, the fifth chapter is going to sound. And we're going to sort of look at four sections of the fifth chapter as we read. I want to give one other note before we dive in, and that is this section of... of of the, of the book, most scholars agree is very difficult to precisely translate. We don't know exactly what some of these sentences mean or phrases. And it's not so much that we have no idea. It's, it's nuances on the phrase. Does the phrase mean that or that, but they're still well within the context of the teaching So this is one of those places in the Bible where like, Interpretive precision is difficult, but the gist of the passage, the main idea is obvious. We're going to live in the main idea. Um, and it help, might help explain why maybe your translation of the Bible is slightly different than mine is. There is some curiosity as to what it exactly uh, Paul intends to write. Okay, let's look at the first two verses. We'll start, we'll start with the problem. <clears throat> Here's the problem. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, what is the problem? 
some of you may be thinking in your mind, well, the problem is that there's this gentleman in the church who's doing a heinous sexual sin. The kind of sin that even those outside of the church would be like, whoo, that's edgy. Which is saying a lot for Corinth. Corinth is like Vegas. So Paul's saying there's someone in the church who's doing something that outside of the church in Sin City, they're saying, mm, that's, we don't do that here. <laughs> Some people might say that's the problem, but it's not the problem. It is a problem, but churches will always have these sorts of problems. God's not going to fault a church because somebody in the church does something wrong. The problem here is that he's doing this and they are arrogant. That's what it says. Verse 2, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? This is one of those places where precision is difficult. Are they arrogant despite the mess? Like, for example, is Paul saying you're boastful and you're proud even though there's some really warped things happening in your midst that you're not dealing with? Like, you would think that something like that would humble the fellowship, but it's not. Is that what he means? Or does it possibly mean that you're arrogant your pride, you're actually proud that something like this can exist in your fellowship. It could, it could actually be, we're not sure which one it is. Is it you have a messy house and yet, and yet you're proud of yourselves? Or is it a little bit more theologically twisted like you have misinterpreted the gospel to mean Jesus forgives us of our sins so our sins no longer matter? Like we can just now do whatever we want in fact, look at the stuff we're doing. Regardless of which one, the gist is obvious, which is if the church had God's heart on the matter, grief and shock would be their disposition, not pride. He says, I can't believe this is happening in your midst. And obviously, it's public. Paul is writing a letter and he knows about it. So it's reached his ears across the sea. Certainly the fellowship knows about it. He's saying the fact that you know about this and your pride continues is not good. And he prescribes what they should do. He says, let the one who has done this be removed from among you. Excommunicate him is the tenor. Put him out. Cut him off. Remove him from the family. Separate him. Now, I, I want to say, for a while in this, this passage we're going to read, they're going to be dealing with a little bit of the how does that happen. This scripture, 1 Corinthians 5, does not serve very well as a teaching on how to discipline because it's not really the issue. The issue is a church that doesn't really care about holiness. That's what Paul's most concerned with. So he's going to talk in some pretty rough ways about how to deal with this. And they don't, I don't think, serve as a good treatise for how to deal with sin in the church. 
I think they de- it's a good treatise on how to feel about sin in the church. Their problem is they don't feel the right way about it. There's other passages in the Bible that sort of coach the church into how to deal with it. But here, it's so brazen, it's so open, it has to be dealt with strongly. And this is, this is how, how Paul's going to counsel them. Let's look at the next two verse, three verses, three through five. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So I know the bottom half of the paragraph is much more shocking than the top half, but I do want to talk a little bit about the top. He says, I'm absent in body, but I'm present in spirit. What does he mean by that? We could say it in some small ways. I think we could all understand the sense of not being somewhere, but still having a stake in what happens. If if, uh, one of your kids were to go to college, if you go off to college, a parent, though absent in body, would be very present in spirit. You know, they call how, how the tests go, or you know, you'd be curious what kind of decisions are they making. The decisions of of that person when they go to college is still highly connected to the parent that just sent them. They're vested. And so you could say, in that sense, that's what it means to be in the spirit. But there's also a grander sense of it all, which is. We all share, everyone who is in Christ shares of the same spirit. And so Paul's saying, like, what's happening in your fellowship? Especially since I, I formed it. I raised it up. I laid the foundation. Like, my spirit is connected to that. And he says, what you need to do is obvious. Next time you're gathered for worship and when I'm with you in spirit in the power of the Lord Jesus, you need to turn this gentleman over to Satan. This is not witchcraft. This is not a spell. This is, the concept is to remove this person from the covenant community of Jesus Christ and make it very clear that he is now outside of that. Turn him back over to the realm of Satan. Give him back. Put him outside the wall. Now, Paul says a byproduct of this, an expected byproduct of this, is that the man's, the destruction of the flesh is the phrase that Paul uses. He's, he's contrasting flesh and spirit the whole time, right? Though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And when you meet and I'm present with you in spirit, turn him over so that his flesh might be, in the destroying of his flesh, his spirit might be saved. So there's, there's the flesh and spirit going on, but the, the basic idea is, is remove him from the covenant fellowship of Jesus Christ, put him outside of the body as though he was not a believer. Do not treat him like he's a believer. Place him outside the body as though he's part of the world, and allow the world to deal with him in the hopes that he'll find God. 
in the hopes that his spirit might be saved. It's not punitive. It's remedial. It's restorative. There's not, there's not any hint there that Paul has a vendetta for this guy or that it's all about him. Paul's concern is for the church. But there's a truth about it, which is in, in sort of in God's sovereignty, somebody, it's not as though in order for God to be for the church, he needs to be against this man. God is for this man and he's for the church. Place him outside the body. Why? So that he might actually find the Lord before he dies. That's the hope. That to preserve this sort of, this gentleman with this sort of lifestyle in the church might actually cause far greater peril to the soul than to be obedient. Put him out. And he continues. Let me read six through eight. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So first Paul deals with what, getting, cutting this man out of the fellowship, and then he deals with the fellowship themselves. And he uses an image, he uses language that would have been very familiar to their ears. Their notion, <clears throat> the idea of leaven, leaven is sort of like a yeast. When part of the bread would be, over time, would begin to ferment, it would start to rise. And what, as a habit in baking they would do is they would grab some of the, some of the dough from an, a, a lump of dough that has risen some, and they would grab it, and they would, they would knead it into a new loaf, and that would expedite or accelerate the rising process. The bacteria from that would rise, kind of like yeast. Okay, they would... They would pinch off and they would incorporate in. And he's saying, don't you, don't you understand? A little bit of leaven works through the whole dough. And all through the Old Testament, leaven was seen as sin. If Paul were here today trying to say something contextually relevant to us, like to reword it in ways that's fresh for our ears, he would say something like, don't you realize that cancer spreads in the body? He would say something like that. He would say, don't you realize how important it is to cut out or contain the cancer when it is confined? Otherwise, it might metastasize and spread throughout the whole body. He'd say, in the same way, the church is the same way. Sin is the same way. Sin is relationally contagious. He would say, in the same way, how, how careful we ought to be that sinful behavior doesn't spread in the fellowship. Paul is careful when he talks here because this is one of these tripwires. For some folks, this is, these are the sorts of places where 
they lose sight of the good news of Jesus. And they think, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to be holy. If I want to see God, I need to be holy. And Paul, he puts a stopgap right in the text here that that prevents that from happening. Look at verse 7. Here's the teaching. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, comma, as you really are unleavened. Do you see what he just said there? He said, listen, you already are pure. You already have been purified. What I'm telling you to do is live as the person you really are. Live as though, live in a holy way as though you recognize that God has made you holy. God had Christ, through Christ, in fact, at the end of seven, right? For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ's death for us has already done the work. We are already purified. He says it's in that reality you should try to live pure. Not so that God might, but because God has saved you. Live pure. And then he begins to talk about this festival. The festival he's talking about is called the Festival of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Unleavened Bread the most notable day in which is Passover. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are part of the same thing. And what that feast remembers is when God saved the Israelites from Egypt. When the very last uh, plague that God sent on Egypt before he brought his people out was when he struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt. But the firstborn of Israel were not harmed because the night before, before the angel of death passed through Egypt, the Israelites put on their doorposts the blood of a lamb. And so that when the angel of death came, he, the Hebrew says he passed over. That's where we get the phrase. He passed over the Israelites because he saw the blood. And the Lord established a feast in which they remember by purifying themselves. He calls it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I want to read it for you because it puts the order, it puts things in order here. Now, I'm going to read you a section of Scripture that's fairly dry. You may think it's boring or tedious. And all of that might be true. But I want you to listen for, I just want you to hear the language of leavened and unleavened. Okay, this is from Exodus chapter 12. This is the Lord giving instructions for a holy day or a holy feast in memory of what he's about to do. This is what he says. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, From the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. For you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt, Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. 
In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day, month, day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation. Whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. <sighs> Any questions? about what to eat and what not to eat. Think about the order. This is an important order. The lamb, the blood of the lamb does the work of liberating the Israelites from Egypt. Like the power of the blood of the lamb saves them from Egypt. And then every year after that, for the rest of eternity, they remember this moment by, in their homes and symbolically, purging sin from their life, remembering what has already been done for them. God has already saved them, and now they, they set their lives apart inside of that salvation. That's what Paul's doing. This, by the way, is exactly what Jesus did, right? When does when the Lord's Supper take place? Jesus sits as the lamb in the Last Supper at Passover. He's doing the work for us. And we follow that work up with holiness. We live as though we really are saved. He says, be who you are. That's what he's asking Corinth. Be who God made you to be. Christ died for you so that you can be holy. So be holy. Let me offer one nuance to this. Verses 9 through 12, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do... I have to do with judging outsiders. It is not those, is it not those on the inside of the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's interesting. You, you, you find out there was an earlier letter, right? Paul wrote earlier some level of instruction that whether they either got confused or whether Paul feels the need right now to be very clear He's clear to say this. He says, listen, in this conversation about holiness, what I am not saying is that you should in no way associate with people outside of the covenant community of Jesus Christ who do these sorts of things. Sexually immoral, swindlers, idolaters, all of those sorts of, it's sort of like a, the basic categories of the sins. He says, of course you have to associate with them. How could you even live in the world? You can't walk around at work. I can't talk to you. You go to a big meeting where you have to report and you say, I can't really talk to any of you. 
people. He's saying, that's not what I'm saying. People who are outside of Christ are not even part of our jurisdiction. They're not even part, they're part of our concern in a sense of mercy and grace. But they're not part of our business. He says that's God's business. What is our business is inside the house of God. He says there, we should really care. Why? Because a little bit of cancer spreads. Because we should at all times have the health of the body in mind. And when one part suffers, the whole part suffers. So he says, listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying to you, Outside the church, outside of our jurisdiction, that belongs to God. Inside of our church, oh, we have to be careful. And he's not on a witch hunt. I don't want anyone to have in a mindset some sort of sharpen your pencil, make a list of who's naughty and nice. Paul's writing in the shade of this egregious, heinous sin, this glaring sin. So, He's, there's nowhere in Scripture that's trying to raise up a people going, mm, you said darn, and darn comes from the root word, so I know what you were saying in your mind, you're going to have to go. That's not what's happening here, okay? It's, it's a spirit of holiness. Try to grab on with your heart to the, the heart of the meaning God wants us to be who we already are. You might say it this way. This is a tough teaching, I think, to, to those who want to be saved but don't want to be holy. This is, this is where the teaching is tough. Those who want to be saved but they don't want to be holy. Who want to go to heaven I'm all about heaven, like I'm all about dessert. But they don't want to eat that on the plate. You mean I, I can't do that and I can't do that? That's just like the green stuff on their plate. How can I get around that? How little of that can I, how little of this do I have to ingest in order to get dessert? Paul is saying, you're missing it. You're missing it. It's not bad. It's good for you. It's for you. People who want salvation without following Jesus, how can we do that? How is that possible? How can we long for the salvation of Christ which saves us from sin and long for sin? Oddly enough, these paradoxes are so true. We, <laughs> I've been that. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. God, I want you. Lord, I think I love you. There's ways in which I worship, and I want that. Irony, ironies, I've prayed for that. God, can I have that? These you're asking for something that I crushed on the cross. Like, I died to save you from the very thing you just asked. 
here's the sort of the metamorphosis of some of the followers of Christ, okay? And I have so much in, I have so much at stake in this that it's I feel like it's worth saying. You know, those who can come to Christ and they love the notion of salvation and they want to be saved and they like God, but holiness is just, uh, I don't want to do it, right? And then they mature a little bit. The next level of Christianity is a notion that holiness is important, but I don't like to eat it, but I know it's good for me, okay? It's like, the, it's like me at 20, with vegetables. I don't like them, but I know they're good for me, so I'm going to eat them so that I don't look weird around my friends. Some people are like that with holiness. I know it's good, I just don't like it, but I'm going to do it. I'm doing it anyway, I just don't like it. And I just want you to know, if that's where you, you are, okay, it's better than not being holy, but there is something better. You're not. If you think this is not that great, God would say, I know that's not that great. That's not what I raised you to, how I raised you to view holiness. Holiness is part of the good news of Jesus. Holiness is the salvation of God in our lives now that will meet the eternal salvation of God when we die. When we die. Holiness is the work of God in our lives right now, extracting us and rescuing us from the sins that entangle us. That's what holiness is. That's why at first it doesn't feel good. It's good news. It's for you. And there's a place, there's a time when our our soul rises and matures to to going, you know what? I like this. I want it. And it's not just a garnish on my plate. <laughs> it's a major part of my meal. And that the goal of my life is not just to get to heaven. The goal of my life is to be God's, is to be his now. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you, to the church, he's saying, you have made far too little of, of walking in the way of God. And it's threatening to kill you. Be all of the Lord's. That's going to be our prayer as we close. Yeah, let's close. Let's close in prayer. And let's try to pray for... Uh, the way all sorts of people handle this. Lord, I imagine in this room there are those who have arrived in some good way with you about holiness. They're not perfect, they make mistakes, but they see, they taste and know that the Lord is good. They, they feel and experience the merit of goodness. Like when we sing, holiness is what I long for, they long for it. Uh, because they know it's good for them. But Lord, then there's another group of us who simply know it's what you want from me. Like I, where it's work, it's hard work, 
It may not even report back to us all the fruit that it's producing. But we know it's what you want from us, Lord. And I pray for those people that they might be shown the, the good fruitfulness of abiding in you, the way that the branch bears so much fruit when it abides in the Lord. May I ask on their behalf that you show it to them. And then there's, Lord, there's the third of us, who, the, the other group of us who we don't like holiness, we don't even want to be holy, but we know you want us to be holy. And Lord, for those, for those of us or for that portion of our own spirit that still stares at righteousness with a wary eye, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would do hard work, cut out what needs to be cut out. Show us the cost and the pain and the forfeiture that takes place in our sin so that we might want a better way. Lord, wherever we are, draw us to yourself. And we thank you that you do that in the confidence of your son. That we're not, we're not racing to reach a certain level before we die so that we're acceptable. We are acceptable. We just want to be with you. Pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.